this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the words, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Federal Society. I'm your host, Jonathan Feld, and I'm joined by my co-host, the current president of the Yale Federal Society, Robert Capitolupo. And we're joined today by a great guest, Josh Halpern, uh, who's coming to talk about an interesting new paper that he's written. Josh Halpern practices appellate and complex litigation at a D.C.-based firm and also serves as a lecturer in law and part-time research fellow at Harvard Law School, where his work focuses on the corporate and constitutional law issues and boycotts and sanctions regimes. Before joining uh, the firm that he's at now, he served as a Bristow Fellow in the Office of the Solicitor General of the United States and clerked in the federal judicial system. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, which I have upon belief and information is a highly impressive achievement, uh, given that Yale does not have Latin honors. But he also served as a notes editor on the Harvard Law Review. And perhaps the most distinguished trait about him is that Josh is from the hallowed and bucolic town of Bala, Kindred, Pennsylvania, like myself. So quite an accolade. Thanks for coming, Josh. Thanks for having me here, John. Pleasure to talk to a fellow Bala, Kindredite. Yeah. Uh, so I guess the, the first thing we usually try to talk about is uh, with our guests is their career and how they've gotten to where they are. So you know, what have you been up to in Cambridge or, or I guess at Harvard and, you know, how are you managing that and your kind of docket as a practicing attorney and how do you see the influence or the interplay between practicing as a lawyer and in academia as a legal scholar? Sure. So I am primarily a practicing lawyer and I dabble in academia on the side, mostly for my own indulgence and because I like to stimulate myself in that way and enjoy interacting with students and my firm has been incredibly um, generous and gracious with me in allowing me to make trips up to Cambridge to teach. And what I've gotten to focus on at Harvard this year has been corporate and constitutional law issues in different boycott and sanctions regimes, which has proven to be a more timely subject than I anticipated. Yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of a, a running thread, I think, uh, among a lot of our guests that you know their, their their work becomes relevant faster than they thought it would. You know, Israel is always a hot-button topic, but especially as it comes to kind of the BDS uh, movement and the anti-BDS laws, um, you know, that's, that's kind of as pressing now as, as, as it has been in, in decades, um, you know, more so these years than ever. So the reason that we, we, we brought you on is because we know that you're, you're working on this great paper that's really, a, I guess, the, the work that I've seen is, is boycotts of First Amendment history. Uh, and I think it's a really, really awesome paper. And I guess we'll talk through it. I, th I think you and I are probably more familiar with the BDS movement than probably the majority of our listeners. But you know, for those who aren't aware, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement is is a um, I, I don't know how to charitably describe it, but it's a movement that would restrict business uh, against uh, businesses either in or doing business with the state of Israel, uh, largely on on account of its political and and policy positions, typically related to its relationship with the Palestinian Authority. So I think that's probably the the, the charitable description of the BDS movement for those who don't know. And as a matter of fact. 
uh, many states have passed laws that prohibit, and, and Josh is the expert on this, but I'm giving the rundowns so that he can correct me and, and add, um, that prohibit state entities and, and public entities from doing business with organizations and individuals that uh, openly endorse or participate in the boycott of Israeli businesses and goods. So you've written a paper about this, about why those laws you think are constitutional. Um, and so maybe talk a little bit about, about the, the thesis of the argument and you know what I just said that was, that was egregiously wrong, if anything. Sure. You, you gave an excellent uh, encapsulation of the laws with, with the caveat that most of these laws, the great majority of them, actually have, have carve-outs for, for like sole proprietorships, and they're really designed to cover businesses and business enterprises and contracts of above a certain threshold. And so the laws are really designed to have a concrete economic impact in protecting uh, sort of the, 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 the free exchange of, of, of goods and services between Israel and U.S. states. So that's just a, a small caveat. And so the thesis of the paper is not about BDS or any particular boycott movement per se. It's a, it's a, a sweeping study of the history of the ways in which state actors have regulated and controlled boycott movements since before the founding. And the, the, the thesis is quite simple. It's that state actors have compelled participation in boycotts whose objectives they support, and they've prohibited or deterred participation in boycotts whose objectives they detest. And it starts before the founding in the colonial era with the Articles of, of Confederation, um, the Articles of Association, excuse me. And so the, these articles called for boycott regimes that are sort of the mirror image of modern anti-BDS laws. So modern anti-BDS laws require contractors as a condition for engaging in commerce with the state to certify that they won't boycott the state of Israel. The colonial era regimes did something quite similar. States like colonies like Providence required merchants to certify that they would boycott the British. And so from a First Amendment standpoint, I think of these as two sides of the same coin. In, 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 in tracing back to before the founding, um, colonists were controlling and regulating and directing the boycott toward objectives they preferred, just as the states are doing now, in an in, in equal but opposite direction. Um, and maybe if I could just say a word about how sort of the idea that inspired the paper and how, how it came to the project. Um, so I've, I've always been engaged in, in, in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. I've read about it. I've been interested in it. Uh, the first of these anti-BDS laws was passed when I was a student at Harvard, and I recall reading about it and attending events about it. And the, the debates were, were largely doctrinal and conceptual. And so, and professors sort of divided, First Amendment scholars divided into two camps. Defenders of these laws would say, um, a boycott is conceptually indistinguishable from any other form of economic discrimination. All of anti-discrimination law is premised on the idea that the refusal to deal, the refusal to buy, the refusal to sell, the refusal to hire someone because of their nationality, their their uh, place of origin, their race, or their political ideas, that's not an inherently expressive act. Because if it were, then all of those different protective civil rights regimes would collapse. And so anti-boycott laws should be treated no differently. Uh, folks on the other side usually appeal to precedent, like uh, NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware, and they try to carve out this cons politically motivated consumer boycott from other, and all other refusals to deal and to treat that as distinctive and protected. And um, 
there wasn't much engagement in, in that debate with like original materials and historical evidence. And so having, having clerked in, in the federal courts of appeals and having done the Bristow and engaged, having the, had the opportunity to engage in litigation at the highest levels before the U.S. Supreme Court, I came to understand that history and tradition are a part of every major case. They're, they're a part of contemporary legal discourse. They're arguably like the sine qua non of constitutionality today in, um, in modern legal debate. And so I thought it might be interesting to sort of bring the, the, the tools of history and tradition to bear on this debate that has, has so far been largely conceptual and doctrinal. Um, and what I found is, is, is quite surprising and it's sort of the opposite of conventional wisdom. So that the critics of these laws uh, have, have, it's principally the ACLU, they've seized the mantle of history. The first line in almost every brief and every academic piece criticizing these laws goes something like, America was founded on a boycott. And, but when I looked closely at the evidence, America was founded on a boycott, and for just as long, state actors have been vigorously controlling the boycott. So like, it's, and as you trace the history, that's the story from, from before the founding to today. And the, the tradition is actually strongest when it comes to Israel. Um, and we can talk about that. But. I think one of the kind of strong points that you start in the article with, and, and you've talked about in your other writings too, is to disaggregate the act of boycott from actual or, or, or you know, putatively actual um, expressive conduct. And I think one of the distinctions you draw is that the states are very careful that the conduct that precludes one from doing business with a, a state actor in these anti-BDS laws are not the expressive conduct per se. So let's stipulate that, you know, to finish the thought, it is, it is the economic activities that you do. So let's stipulate that I'm, you know, an ice cream company named Schmen and Schmerys. And I say that I disapprove of what the Israeli government under Prime Minister Shmetanyahu has done in in you know po- certain policy actions, and you, you're vocal about it. You write letters. You you put it on official letterhead. Um, but nevertheless, the company still sells its products and and buys I don't know milk from cows outside uh, Jerusalem. And you know it, like there's no actual economic difference there. And I'm you know the state of of Shmouth Shmerilina, um, under under Governor Shmaley. Uh, and, and, and we have an anti-BDS law, you know, as, as long as the, the company doesn't actually engage in any actual boycotting, the laws don't kick in. Uh, and so I think that is, I think a key point that you draw out, it's purely based on economic conduct. And I think that you're careful in drawing through the history and tradition that these kinds of either pro or anti-boycott examples. And I think you go through, I don't know, probably three, three to five really paradigmatic cases that stood out to me, um, all really do a careful job of keeping it economic in nature, which, which I think that, that is central to the argument for their constitutionality, right? Certainly. And I think there are many um, misconceptions about these laws, and this is probably the most common one, which is that they are a muzzle on speech and prevent people from criticizing Israel. That could not be further from the truth. Companies that contract with states that have these laws are free to declare from the rooftops of their corporate headquarters that Israel is an apartheid state and uh, they should be made an international pariah. But, but in, in practice, 
most companies that do engage in a boycott of uh, of Israel usually don't hold those views, and they're they're being pressured to do so by forces from outside them. So, like that was what happened with with Airbnb. They were just the victim of a pressure campaign, and they made that clear, and then they withdrew. And so, the laws target boycotts regardless of the motivation, regardless of whether you, you're boycotting Israel because you think it's insufficiently um, conservative or insufficiently Jewish in its identity, or the opposite, because you think that the Jewish people don't have a right to a state of their own. Whatever your motive is utterly irrelevant. The law is trained to the act of boycotting. And it says, if you want to get a state contract, if you want to be a recipient of state funds, if you want the state to subsidize your business enterprise in some way, you can't engage in economic discrimination against Israel or Israeli firms. So I get that we've been talking about states, but let's say at the federal level, could Congress step in and mandate that any company that wanted a congressional charter or wanted to do business in the U.S. had to do business with Israel or any other state uh, through its power to regulate foreign commerce? So the, the, my, the, my research focus has been the, the First Amendment questions. I think that that sounds like it could raise a host of other complicated constitutional questions that are sort of outside of my lane. Um, and did you mean to ask whether they could compel you to deal with those foreign nations or they could prohibit you? They could compel you to. Compel you, yeah. I mean, it's hard to envision that exactly how that would operate in practice, but I don't see why not, at least under the First Amendment. I mean, And so on the flip side, would you agree that Congress can prohibit American companies from doing business with certain states under its power to regulate foreign commerce? So just to be clear, Congress Congress has passed an anti boycott an elaborate anti boycott regime in multiple steps. So starting in the 1970s through the 1980s, President Ford um, called upon Congress to take steps to combat combat the Arab boycott of Israel, and um, and Congress quickly passed the Ribicoff Amendment on a bipartisan basis. And what that did was it imposed tax penalties against any firm that participated in the Arab boycott of Israel. And then Congress followed that up with uh, amendments to the Export Administration Act, which operate as a full-blown ban on participation in the Arab boycott. There's an Office of Anti-Boycott Compliance that's associated with Treasury that firms are required to report any requests to to participate in illicit boycotts to. Actually, it was President Carter who signed that bill. And in his signing statement, he famously declared that Though the Arab boycott is nominally directed at Israel, the true targets are Jews at home and around the world. And obviously, he later came to revise that political assessment of the movement. President Carter became a, a, a famous or notorious critic of the state of Israel. But that signing statement underscores decades of, of bipartisan consensus around both the power to regulate the boycott as conduct rather than speech, and also like the distinctive political judgment that boycotts of the state of Israel are not desirable social action, but are actually incendiary discrimination that often stands as an, in as a proxy for anti-Semitism. And I, I think the key distinction that you're drawing, I guess, for me to summarize my understanding of the article in a sentence is, based on text, structure, and tradition around congressional or state regulation of economic activity, 
boycotts, the, the, the issue of pro or anti-boycott legislation just doesn't even touch the First Amendment, is I guess your point. Because in addition to what you described with President Ford, you also have the precedent of the South African boycott during apartheid, where governments kind of coerced or, or, or encouraged with, with carrots and sticks companies that wish to do business with the governments to comply with the boycott of apartheid South Africa, right? So the Constitution doesn't dictate which which policy is acceptable. That's a matter left to discretion of the legislatures themselves. That's exactly right. And and the analogy between contemporary anti-BDS laws and the state-level anti-apartheid laws is striking. So they, they are they are truly the mirror image of one another. So so states, mostly blue states, but states across the country passed laws that basically said, if you want a state contract, you have to uh, disclaim economic relations with apartheid South Africa, or you have to divest from apartheid South Africa. And yeah, that is, that is the mirror image of, the, of today's anti-BDS law. And they're constitutional under the First Amendment for precisely the same reason. Um, and, and just like modern Israel, the, the, there was a, a sharp policy debate in the federal government and on the state levels about how to approach and how to facilitate change um, with apartheid South Africa. Reagan was famously um, in favor of economic engagement as a means to facilitate change on the ground there. Obviously, a bipartisan Congress sort of repudiated his view, but someone couldn't say, I I refuse to acquiesce in the state anti-apartheid law because I'm a Reaganite. There was no First Amendment ground to stand on to oppose a state boycott law. And the same is true of modern anti-BDS laws. And so we, we see the mirror image actually today in the state laws that, that regulate um, or that condition contracts on an agreement to boycott Russia after its invasion of Ukraine. What are those looking like out of curiosity? They're basically the, the, um, they're patterned almost identically on the anti-apartheid statutes and they're like the mirror image of the anti-BDS laws. The other thing that, that we talked about a little before we, we started recording today, um, I think touches on this economic versus expressive distinction. Uh, because a lot of cases, I think, that are that are really you know relevant and are, and are hot button issues relate to the question of you know forcing individuals to deal with with certain groups. I mean, this is this is decades old. You know, whether it's racial or, or gender or sexual. Um, you know, obviously, there, there are, there's a long line of cases that deal with states that require individuals along the lines of public accommodations um, to to you know basically disallows them from from effectively engaging in what might be a boycott. We talked a little bit about some possible answers to the to the difference, but you know how different and and in what ways do you think those those laws are? And you know to, to put a fine point on it, I, th- I think. There are recent recent Supreme Court cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop and and you can talk about it, 303 Creative, which is about to come down this term, um, that that touch on that question a little bit. But as a general matter, maybe without getting even into the facts of those particular cases, do you see uh, any any major distinctions between that and and the present context here of anti BDS boycott laws? So I think the the unifying the unifying doctrinal proposition that explains why all these laws are, are presumptively or most of them are presumptively okay, is that the refusal to deal is not inherent expression. And so that explains why the refusal not to buy uh, or the refusal not to sell, whether it's you know, to, a, to a client that you don't like or to, to a company that you, that, or a country that you detest is, is not um, necessarily protected by the First Amendment. Now, the cases that you've mentioned are interesting because actually 
to take the, the example of Masterpiece Cake Shop, there, there was broad agreement among the parties in that case, including the, the amicus brief filed by uh, General Francisco on behalf of the United States during the Trump administration, that the decision to, to, sh- to sell a, a cake, a ready-made cake off the shelf, that's, that's not expression. And the refusal to do that isn't inherently protected. There needs to be something in, in the transaction that is inherently expressive. And that's sort of a case-specific inquiry. That would, that's what turns it into speech. The thing about a boycott, the refusal to buy something, is that it's by definition not inherently expressive. And um, it's, it's one, one way we know that is because you can't know what someone is doing when they're engaged in a boycott unless they tell you. Because if they don't tell you, all, all you see is someone not buying something. Could be for any number of reasons. You might not even know that they have made an affirmative decision not to buy something unless they use words to accompany that decision and explain the decision. And so the words are always protected, but the decision not to buy is not. And one other caveat, um, or one other gloss on, on, on the cases you mentioned, is the, a potential distinction between free exercise and free speech. So the, the historical work I've done focuses principally on whether the boycott was conceptualized as speech. But, but from an originalist and from a sort of a traditionalist standpoint, it is surely conceivable that the founders and state actors throughout U.S. history had a different view about whether the refusal to deal was exercise within the meaning of the free exercise clause. And obviously there's a robust literature on whether the free exercise clause was contemplated uh, to encompass exemptions from general and neutrally from general and uh, neutral laws. And so I don't purport to have anything new to say about that question. I think my next, maybe my next article will be the boycott and the baker. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll get into that a bit, but, but that's, that's a thread of the history I haven't yet studied closely. So you said that you don't know if someone is partaking in a boycott until they tell you or un- until they use words as the a clearest form of evidence. Um, how in general are these anti-BDS laws enforced then? If a state wants to bring enforcement action against a firm that told them that they would comply and then doesn't, um, are there any instances of that uh, having taken place? It's a good question. Uh, and, and the enforcement problem is is interesting. I think part of the, the, the function of the certification that states have you sign is like, an ex, they're extracting an ex-ante commitment to comply with the law, and so they don't have to engage in much ex-post policing. So if you don't sign ex-ante, that's a, that's a, a strong signal that you're not going to comply ex-post, and so you don't get the contract, and this problem doesn't arise. So that's, that's I think, another feature of the wisdom of these regimes is that they don't necessarily get the state entangled in that thorny question about policing violators. That said, if you sign a certification and there's good evidence that you've engaged in economic discrimination against Israeli firms, then you can be on, you can, you can lose your contract. And I guess your question is, as an evidentiary matter, how does the state know when you've done that? Um, that that's a question that arises in every discrimination case. So in every, in every case of employment, discrimi- of alleged employment discrimination, the court needs to suss out why the employer didn't hire the applicant. And one thing they'll look to is like things the applicant has said about, you know, 
racial groups or their views about race or like they'll have to look to speech as a, as, as, as or they won't have to, but they might look to speech as evidence um, for, for, for whether or not you, you made this decision on the basis of the person's race or instead on the basis of their merit. Um, and the same is true of the enforcement of, of the anti-BDS laws. So it's certainly conceivable that someone's speech could be relevant to the ex post inquiry into whether or not they were truly engaged in economic discrimination against Israel. But the law is not punishing the speech. The law is punishing the economic discrimination. And punishing is a strong word. You're losing a contract. Well, but I assume that for a lot of states, if, if you have a, a contract with a state that's canceled, that can be the end of your entire business. Your, your, your whole business structure could, could collapse if, if you know, a state has kind of a, you know, once, like, just like military contracting, once you lose the contract once or once you fail to perform, um, you know, you're, you're not able to contract with the state again. And then, and then you could really, you know, it could be a very severe penalty. So it might be, I mean, to Rob's question, the enforcement might not be that strong, but the deterrence is, is especially high because the consequences are astronomical or catastrophic to the business. Um, but anyway, the, the question that I have kind of as a knock-on of, of, of all that we've been discussing is, do you have any sense of how in each state, and, and the answer might be different across the states, these laws are, are justified in terms of their constitutional structures? Are they, are they seen as economic regulation? Are they seen as kind of, you know, state internal rules regarding their own purchasing agreements? Are they seen as anti-discrimination laws? I mean, maybe they're branded in a different way or, or built in a different way for, for PR than they are for, for lit- litigation. But do you have any sense of, of, of where these fall in the general structure? Are they part of the police power just broadly defined? I mean, you know, where, where in the given state constitutions are, are, are these things falling? I think all of these laws rest on the fundamental intuition that, I mean, it's, it's just that this is an empirical fact. States spend money, they need contractors, and that they can place moral conditions on the contracts. They don't need to condone discrimination. They don't need to subsidize discrimination. And so they can be choosy about whom they contract with. They can tell contractors you can't discriminate on the basis of LGBTQ status. And they can tell contractors you can't discriminate on the basis of Israeli national origin or uh, religion or, you know, anything like that. Um, So I think that's just like the fundamental intuition behind the laws. I also think that... A lot of states in our globalized economy have strong economic ties with and investment in Israel and the and sort of Israeli technology firms and capital markets, and they have a vested interest in seeing Israel succeed, um, a vested economic interest. And so the laws do exert meaningful pressure against big companies who could otherwise damage Israel's economy by succumbing to the BDS campaign. I guess to switch gears a little bit, we alluded to the fact that you're both a practicing attorney and you know doing doing a pretty serious job in academia between your time at Harvard and and you know trying to publish academic publications and and, and write kind of serious and impactful articles. So I guess you know maybe if you're willing to talk through how one does that, I, I think I guess I ask that because especially here at our law school and I think more broadly among my friends, people are trying to figure out how to balance their intellectual interests with you know, their desire to, to do meaningful, practical, real-world work. So how you found that, how, how you've been able to balance, and, and you know, any, any advice for those who, who might be interested in the same? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very green at this, but I'll, 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 I'll try to the extent this is useful to your listeners. I find that uh, 
the exercise of litigation and the exercise of, of writing an academic article, they're, they're different, but the skills are mutually enforcing. And the great thing about litigation is your audience is a non-expert, impartial, highly intelligent individual who you have to presume is coming to your, your case with an open mind and your job is to, to persuade them. And, and you're an advocate, of course, but like the, the skills and mechanics of litigation really teach you how to speak in just like a simple and eloquent way to a, to a, to a person not initiated in your discipline. And I think if, if academics sort of absorbed that mentality, it would make so much of academic writing more digestible. At least that's, that's my feeling. And so as, as a scholar, you're doing something quite different. You don't have a client, you know, you're, you are your own client. Your, your job is to seek and promote the truth. Um, but deploying a sort of a similar style in, in writing and sort of conceiving of, at least I always, in everything I write, I think of my audience as like a hypothetical open-minded jurist and it's no, no matter what I'm doing. Maybe I have a different agenda. Like as a scholar, my agenda is truth. And as an advocate, my agenda is to promote the interests of my client. But in either case, I sort of conceive of myself as writing to the same target audience. Mm. And I think a lot of, at least, and maybe I'm, maybe this is, this is not good advice for someone who wants to sort of develop a, a long and, and storied career in academia. So I, I, I don't think about like the scholarly community as my, my target audience, because I, I don't know what, I mean, scholars have a variety of interests and this, this internal scholarly discussion can, I think it was the chief justice who said something about like the disutility of, of the volume of law review articles are out there. That sort of, that resonates with me. And so I think what, like I, I didn't become a philosopher. I became a lawyer. I decided to study law because I care about the ways in which ideas impact the real world. And so, so yeah, that, that sort of anchors the way I think about the, the relationship between advocacy and scholarship. And I guess as a follow on, there's a question, because I, I think of all of the guests we've had, very few have had the kind of like holy trinity of, of kind of legal experiences between academia, private practice, and, uh, you know, government service. And I guess in your case, both as a Bristow fellow and as a clerk in the federal judicial system. So do you think the writing or, or in what ways have you found, in addition to what you said between academia and, and, and practicing as an attorney, does the writing differ between practicing, you know, on the private side versus as, you know, writing briefs on behalf of, of the government or, or writing memos uh, to a judge? I mean, do, do, you, do you find yourself kind of varying your style even within that kind of granular distinction? There, there are surely rhetorical techniques that one can use as a uh, private practitioner that one cannot use as a government lawyer. And that is because the government is a repeat player before all the highest courts in the land and has this deep reservoir of cre credibility that it's cultivated and needs to be strategic in the way it talks and the way it writes. And also it has a distinct set of institutional interests that cut often transcend the case, the particular case that's before the court. As a, as a lawyer in private practice, you, the, the strategic judgments are different. Often like you can turn up the temperature a little higher and the stakes of particular cases are often the focus of the, of the, of the project. Um, as for clerking, I think that's, that's, that's more like scholarship. That's, 
At least the judges that I clerked for were unflaggingly committed to getting the law right, and my job was to help them do that. And that's so that's 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 a totally different animal. It's not advocacy. I mean, clarity in in, in thought and clarity in writing is critical, no matter the capacity in which you're writing. But um, but yeah, it's a, it's just a different set of objectives. What advice would you have for law students, especially who are hoping to maybe? publish a note with their school's law, a journal, or publish an article after graduating. What do you think is the best way to get your foot in the door with respect to publishing your first piece? It's a great question. Um, Probably finding a mentor who can guide you toward a topic that is um, timely and interesting and, and useful. Um, as a law student, I found it difficult to know like what will matter in five years or in 10 years. Like, is what I write, will what I write become obsolete in a few months? Will it be of interest to a broad audience? And it, it takes time and experience, whether it's in academia, it's in litigation or in government to sort of develop a, a broader and a more, um, experienced and, and wise perspective on, on things that will endure and things that are fleeting and are just have, have the world's attention just for a few moments. And so to consult, to find someone and to consult them, or it doesn't even need to be one person. It can be like a collection of people who you can just bounce ideas off of at the very outset of your projects to just gut check. Like, does this make sense? Is this interesting? Will this be useful? I, I, I did that at the start of my project and I received some incredibly helpful feedback from some people who are much smarter and wiser than me, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. We, we, we try and stay off of public policy topics, but I'm going to ask you one, one question. I promise it's not that hard, uh, but because you spent a lot of time dedicated to this and, and studying these things, do you have any sense of which way you think the political wins on these particular anti-BDS state laws are going? Do you think we'll see more states passing them? Have we hit the kind of you know plateau? Do you think there will be kind of retrenchment and maybe repeal of some of them in the next few years? I mean, do you have any sense of that at all based on, uh, I assume you're you know, a pretty well-informed guy on the topic considering you're a really great paper. So any insights on that? I, I think we haven't yet plateaued. We're coming close to perhaps like the end of the line here. Um, that said, it's more than 30 states. Like it's... It's just been an immensely successful legislative campaign. But just the other week, New Hampshire brought to the floor a bill, um, a classic anti-BDS law bill, and that they debated pretty vigorously. And um, yeah, not to not to toot, toot mine and my co-author's horn too, too loud, but we were very excited to see that um, our findings were sort of entered into the legislative record. So hopefully... Hopefully it'll be it'll be fun to see like when when you write something and it has an act, actual practical impact and people listen that's that's a good feeling. Not to mention, I, I mean, I didn't mention this in, the intro, in the introduction, but but you guys were cited right by the state of Arkansas in, in a pretty recent SCOTUS brief. So I, you know that, that that that's a great example, I think, of you know the kind of scholarly impact that you have when you tailor your, tailor your writing to issues that that are of you know some some serious importance to contemporary issues. Not to say that you know. Other scholars aren't trying to do the same because, of course, they are. But, but I think your your imminent relevance is 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 kind of paying dividends, and I think it's it's 
proof of of the wisdom of the strategy and and the value of the work. So you know, I think that's must must feel nice, right? Well, yeah, it's it's um it's it, it's it's fun to see like ideas making an impact in the real world. But to step away from the the controversies of BDS for a moment, the two two aspects of the article that I think are are interesting and will be enduring is um this the anti boycott legislative project is not restricted to BDS. So we're seeing it spreading to other areas. And there are infinite permutations of anti-boycott laws that we could see from promoting just a really eclectic range of political agendas. And so I think this this question, though it arose in the context of a particularly contentious political issue around Israel and the Palestinians, it's not restricted to it. Um, the other sort of question that 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 um, the paper implicates directly that I think is personally is quite interesting and is important to the conservative legal movement right now and perhaps more interesting to many of your listeners than sort of the more parochial BDS question is the, the relevance of history and tradition as a methodology to the right answers in constitutional adjudication. And so, I mean, my paper is almost exclusively focused on on history that postdates the founding and a lot of contemporary history that postdates the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And so what, if any, normative weight should that history have on the meaning of the First Amendment is a deeply contested and difficult question that scholars are really grappling with now more than ever, especially in the wake of the recent Supreme Court term, where we saw the court decide Dobbs and Bruin um, and invoke post-enactment history as, as a basis for decision. I mean, not exclusively as a basis for decision, but this is something the court does all the time. It's an under-theorized area, and I think it's it's ripe for scholarship. So to the extent folks are looking or thinking about opportunities to to make a contribution, sort of take an interesting constitutional question and, and, and just walk back down memory and history lane is sort of a, a good place to start. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That it certainly comes out in the paper. I think as I read, I, I even made a note. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if, if you did this consciously or not, but it feels like uh, you really made use of probably three or four of, of what Philip Bobbitt would call constitutional modalities, and they basically are, you know, doctrine, doctrine structure, and original, you know, original, you know, meaning is all clearly kind of coming through in the paper and history, of course. So. You know, I, I think that especially the, the history and tradition angle is going to be increasingly important in all areas of constitutional law. And to the extent that this is kind of a durable contribution to that effort, I think it's 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 tremendously successful. So the only thing that we usually end with, I think, is is the question that we we told you before we even started recording was was given you know your your, your career and your interest and, and what you've done, a lot of our listeners are law students. Do you have any particular advice, guidance, thoughts about you know how you've gotten to where you are and and, and you know what 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 you thought was really successful as you went through law school and what maybe you would or anything if anything you would have changed? I will I will say that. Harvard's FedSoc is was amazing. I I don't know that Yale's is as robust. I mean, this podcast is 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 great. Um, Josh, you're talking to almost all of its members, so you know you can tell us how good we are. <laughs> I would like to think that we are robust. Uh, we did not win chapter of the year this year. That did go to Harvard, but we won last year for the second time. So we're still up there in the rankings. So maybe this is less of a um, this is less of an issue for you, but at least at Harvard, it was very easy to stay within my sort of FedSoc circle and uh, engage with my 
many like-minded peers, but um, but forming enduring friendships with people who have very different ideas than you is it just creates like the, the best sounding board for your ideas and the best long run way to sharpen your mind and sharpen your thinking. And to, so, I mean, we live in a, in a, in a highly polarized environment, but that doesn't need to infect um, the friendships that can, you know, facilitate your own intellectual growth and personal fulfillment. And so if I could do one thing over, maybe this it's approach law school with, 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 with that sort of, intentionality to embrace relationships with, with those who disagree with me deeply about the things that matter most. That sounds like great advice. I, I think we try to do that really hard here at, at Yale and, and you know, I hope everyone else is too, because it's such, such a valuable part of the experience. So with that, Josh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. This has been a, a lot of fun for me and, and Rob and, and we're really grateful. So, so thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.